Tonight we're going to look at Rome, uh, Revelation 1, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 8 with a particular emphasis on verse 7, uh, a phrase that is uh, common in the Old and the New Testament, this concept of coming in the clouds. Uh, before we can get into what that means, we need to spend some time with the uh, verses that surround it. And before we do that, I want to remind you of the first three verses The first three verses are the most important points of the book. If we don't have a grasp of how to interpret the book of Revelation, then we are guaranteed that we will uh, misunderstand what the book is talking about. And that is my belief as to why you can find every single book in teaching to be different than every other book in teaching that you can find. is missing these three really important points. Uh, verses. He begins with it being the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded that this is an unveiling. This is a revealing. The book of Revelation is not intended to be code. It's not intended to be hidden or concealed from its original audience. The book of Revelation is revealing things that were concealed in the Old Testament prophecies. And so that's what this book is going to do. Things that were sealed up and and were hidden in the past prophecies, probably particularly Daniel, and we'll observe that as we go through our studies in future lessons, that is what is being unveiled in this book. Second, this book is written in symbols. You see that in verse 1 as well. This is signified by His angel and given to the servants, given to John. That's a very important word that these things are signified. They're put into signs. Which then what that does is it changes how we read the book of Revelation. When we go through the book of Revelation, we need to figure out what do these symbols represent. Don't get caught up on the symbol itself. Do not get weird when you read about dragons and beasts and stars falling and all of those things that we will read. We need to look at those symbols and understand, well, what are they representing? What is it trying to tell us? And what will come into play tonight and will come into play in all of our studies is that means everything we read in Revelation is symbolic. Unless something in the text demands otherwise. Something in the text to tell us, no, this is a literal beast or literal dragon or literal stars. There's something there that says, no, no, I really mean this for certain instead of taking it in a symbolic way. And so that's a, a very important piece. Look for the symbols unless something in the text states otherwise. All right, and then number three... In verse 1 and also in verse 3. In verse 1, these things must soon take place. And verse 3, the time is near. The things that are written in Revelation would have a direct impact upon the first century audience. Now that doesn't mean that absolutely nothing in the book has yet to be fulfilled. When we get out toward the end, I'm going to submit to you, there are chapters there that have not been fulfilled yet. But... This tells us that we can't understand the whole book as being not yet fulfilled because it was written to the first century Christians in these seven churches of Asia telling them the things you're about to read are going to happen soon and that the time is near. And so we must keep that in mind that we cannot push all of the book of Revelation out into the future or even out past the lifetime of that first century audience. Somehow, some way, there's a direct impact 
for them. And then finally, the book is prophetic. The end of verse 3 says, calls this prophecy, the book of Revelation needs to be understood and interpreted as if you were reading the book of Daniel, the book of Zechariah, the book of Ezekiel. And what does that tell us? Well, mainly, these are symbols. These are symbols. These are symbols. And so understand the symbol, and then we will understand the meaning of the book. Let's go to verse 4 now, and let's uh, examine these five verses that we have from verse 4 to verse 8. Verse 4, Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's a lot in here for us to deal with in just these few verses. And what I want you to observe as we begin is notice this first century Greco-Roman format of a letter. We have seen that in all of our New Testament studies in each of those letters. We studied Romans. We see it in the book of James. You have all of these letter formats. And the same is done here as he begins with the very first word is John. This is the author. He is the one who is pinning this revelation. And we are told the recipients. It is the seven churches of Asia. And now remember what I just began with and what we examined last week. We've already begun the prophecy. We've already begun the book of Revelation. Are these seven churches then actually churches? Or should they be understood symbolically? Should we take the number seven, as commonly understood as the sign of perfection, and as typically done by most scholars, is that what these seven churches are is a representation of the various states of local churches of how they could be at any time and in any place. It is typically argued that you can find your local church and its condition in one of those seven that are described there. And so seven being a perfect number, it represents what all churches would be. And I think that has to be weighed upon our mind because we're going to come to other numbers in the future. We're going to read about sevens and 144,000 and 1,000. We're going to come up with uh, times, times, and half a times and 42 months. We're going to see all kinds of numbers flying around. And we're going to see them as symbolic, that they're going to have some sort of symbolic reference behind them. Should we do it here? Is there something in the text that demands otherwise? And I submit to you that there is. The thing that demands that these are seven actual churches is that they are named. And that is important as we go through Revelation is that there will be places where God makes it clear this should not be understood as a symbol. This is an actuality. I'm not just talking about seven figurative churches who all have a variety of conditions and and you find your church in the seven. No, no. These are seven churches that actually existed in the first century and this letter is written by John and it's going to be circulated around to those seven churches. 
they're specifically named here. They're named again at the end of chapter 1. They're named again in chapters 2 and 3. And we'll see that in certain places where we'll have some sort of image given. But then there are so many details that are laid upon it, it forces us to understand a literal understanding. And so it is here. If he wanted it just to be seven generic churches, then you don't name them. You would just say, there are seven churches, and then we would go right along. But the naming of them, the detailed description of their condition in chapters 2 and 3 forces us to say, no, these are seven churches, these are Christians in these churches, and we need to understand the text that way. What comes next in a first century letter? You have John as author, the rest of verse verse 4, your recipients. What comes next? Salutation, right? Grace and peace, very common. And you always have that in Paul's letters. Grace and peace to you. Here's John do following the same format. Grace to you and peace is, is being given. But who is this salutation from? This is perhaps our first challenge and difficulty that we encounter in the book. Who is giving this salutation? Who are these people that are then saying hello or blessed or greeted in, in this grace and peace? Let's start with the easier one and work our way to the more difficult. The easiest one is in verse 5. From Jesus Christ. We can all get on board with that one. That one's straightforward and easy. Alright. One under our belt. One is coming from Jesus. Grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ. The second one is made perhaps a little bit more difficult, but I think we can put it together in verse 4. From Him who is and who was and who is coming. Well, who would that be referring to? Well, we've already had Jesus Christ on the map as one giver. This would then likely be God the Father. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. But notice there's one more entity described in between the two. We have from Him who is and who was and who is coming. And then there's a statement, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And we go, well, what's that? (laughs) Who are we talking about here? We have to observe that it's sandwiched between God the Father and Jesus Christ. I think that's an important observation to make is look where this description lies. The other important observation to make is that anytime there's a salutation in the New Testament, the grace to you in peace is coming from a divine source and not from created beings. And I think that's another critical observation to make. And so my analysis, which is different, for, I, don't know if I'll, I probably won't tell you every time I've changed my mind through Revelation, but we're already in verse 5, and I've, verse 4 and 5, and I've already changed from if you go to Apocalypse Project, I've written something completely different right there. And so I've changed it. I think this is the Holy Spirit. And I'll have to show you that as we go through because we're going to read about the seven spirits a few more times in the book of Revelation. So we'll have to observe that. So I think what we have before us here is a sandwich process. Here is God the Father. Here is the Holy Spirit. Here is Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Why put Jesus Christ last on the list? I think in terms of just normal language because what He's going to do from verse 5 through verse 8 is give a description of 
about Jesus. He's not done describing who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us. So the we're used to reading Father, Son, Spirit in that order. Son and Spirit are reversed so that there can be further description about the Son and the things that He's accomplished. We don't have time for it tonight, and I didn't want to do it tonight, but I want you to consider its connection, this description of the seven spirits, over in Zechariah chapter 4. We'll examine that meaning when we get to Revelation 5 verse 6. So I put it on the screen, we're putting a pin in it. We'll get there. When we get to Revelation 5 and verse 6, we'll see the seven spirits before the throne again with a greater description about this. And Zechariah 4 and the first ten verses are very much a parallel of the same description. And when we get to Zechariah, I believe we're reading about the Holy Spirit there and what is going to be accomplished by the Spirit of God. And seven is used there as well. But that's for another time. That's for your own studies and for your own fun. And we'll get back to that concept later on. But I want you just to see that. And I think what we are already doing, and we're going to see this tonight in a number of occasions, is that John is already beginning to make these connections back to the Old Testament. He's already using images and language to immediately get the reader's mind to start thinking back to the Old Testament writings, to the Old Testament prophets, so that as you go through, your mind is tuned up and ready to be thinking about when I read a symbol, when I read a description, I need to be thinking about the Old Testament image, the Old Testament name, or the Old Testament event, so that I can then apply it to Revelation. We're going to do a lot of that tonight. I hope you have your own Bibles. If you don't, be sure to grab one of the few Bibles in front of you because we're going to do a lot of Bible turning tonight as we're going to look at a lot of these other kinds of descriptions. But it's already set off for us. Seven spirits are before the throne of God. Immediately that was to connect the mind of, hey, think about Zechariah chapter 4. Think about what you see there. And that will be used again a couple of times. Zechariah 4 is used a number of times in Revelation and already beginning now with the salutation given from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 5, he continues his description of Jesus and with three very fascinating descriptions. Verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. This has a very strong Old Testament reference to Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, all three of these descriptions are used. Now, if we had all the time in the world, we would just drop our lesson. Let's just go study Psalm 89 tonight. We won't do that here, but I do promise that down the road we're going to be doing those kinds of things. We're just going to have to stop Revelation, go back to the Old Testament, and spend some time there. I think you can read Psalm 89 on your own. I'll give you a summary of it, and you go back and look at it and check me out on this. Psalm 89 is a description about the covenant blessings and the covenant promises that were given to David that his seed, his descendants, his offspring would sit on the throne. His descendants that were promised to him and this covenant blessing to him that it would be his children who would sit on the eternal throne. Psalm 89 is recalling that and saying when the Messiah comes, he's going to be the descendant of David and that is the fulfillment 
of God's covenant promises. And so what we do is we come into Psalm 89, and you'll notice like in verse 27, there's a description there of this messianic offspring, this descendant of David. And what is he? He is described as the firstborn. He is also described as the highest of the king of all the kings of the earth. He is the one who is in charge. He is enthroned. He is sitting on the throne and ruling with all power and might. And so therefore He is the firstborn and He is in charge over the kings of the earth. And then you scan down a few more verses. In verses 36 and 37 of Psalm 39, you get the other description calling this descendant of David the faithful witness and how this messianic offspring will rule forever and will endure like the sun in the sky. So what is the point that is being drawn out here? And I think there are a few key things. First of all, one of the things that we repeatedly see in the New Testament in calling Jesus the firstborn is a showing of the firstborn of the dead in being the one who raises from the dead. Jesus proves that He has all authority. He is victorious over sin. He is victorious over the grave. He is victorious over death. And therefore, He has absolute power. He rules over all other powers. He rules over all other nations. And that is why He is then firstborn of the dead. As the one who raises from the dead, it implies that He has all authority and power granted to Him. And that's what I think Revelation is connecting back to with Psalm 89. What Revelation is pointing to Jesus and is saying is, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy of concerning David's offspring. This messianic promise. And the messianic promise was that David's seed would be the firstborn who would rule on the throne, who would be granted all authority, who would be given all power. He would have absolute power over the rulers. He would be king over kings of the earth and his rule will endure forever. The book of Revelation is setting something up for us as we're about to progress into greater and more amazing images. And that is the conflict between the exalted Christ who is ruling on the throne, who has all authority and is king over over all the rulers of the earth versus all the earthly rulers. And there's going to be a conflict described. It's often... Repeatedly, you know, Armageddon, you know, big deal, right? You know, movies, all that kind of stuff. Well, there's going to be a description of a battle. There's going to be a description of a coming conflict. And already right here we have a setup of here are the kings of the earth and here is Christ on His throne. Who's going to win the battle? Who's going to be set up as ruler? And so that's what's being described for us here in verse 5. In describing and seeing Jesus, He is the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the faithful witness. His throne endures forever. He is firstborn of the dead through the resurrection. It proves that He has all authority and all dominion. Continuing in verse 5. Seeing what Jesus has done, we'll quickly get, go through this section, but I think it's still very important to observe. Notice all the things described of what He does. Praise and glory and dominion is ascribed to Jesus. Why? Because He's loved us. Because He has freed us from our sins. 
because He has made us a kingdom. And I think that's not without intention. We'll even see it tonight. Already John's putting his finger on something that Christ has ruled. Christ has a kingdom. And we are in His kingdom. We are citizens of His rule. Not citizens of Rome, first century audience. Not citizens of the Jewish nation, again, first century audience. But we are citizens in the kingdom of God, functioning as priests to His God and Father. Very important picture there. Direct access that the people of God have to God the Father. No need for... You to confess your sins to some other human being or even as the Old Testament would describe in going and having priests and taking your offering to them and they would mediate between God and you. Now you are the priest. We are all priests of God in this kingdom under the new covenant, standing before God, making our offerings before Him, pleading for forgiveness of sins and receiving that from Him. And so what verse 5 and verse 6 are doing is just praising Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done. If it wasn't that we had a lot to do in Revelation, I'd just pull that out and make a whole sermon out of that because we could spend a lot of time praising Jesus about all that He's done and what that means for us and the privileges that we have as being in His kingdom, citizens of that kingdom, in the kingdom of God, reigning with Him, priests of God, finding forgiveness because He's loved us, because He has taken away our sins. And so here is this praise to Jesus for His actions on our behalf. Verse 7 is the the verse that we're going to spend the most time with. Verse 7, though not a direct quotation, as we'll notice, there's really not any direct quotations in Revelation. However, nearly every word is an allusion from something in the Old Testament. And so here are two passages being combined together into one prophetic statement. And so we'll break these two apart. The first is the first half of verse 7. Behold, He is coming in the clouds. This most likely has its strongest reference to Daniel chapter 7. We'll observe the other instances of coming in the clouds in just a moment. But... Daniel 7 seems to be the likely reference point because you have this picture given there where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That sounds like what we just read there at the end of verse 6. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We're making this connection back to the Old Testament that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What's the point? What does it mean with coming in the clouds? What's the intention of Daniel chapter 7? It is that the Messiah, Jesus, He is enthroned as King. But not just merely king, it is an eternal rule, it is an eternal kingdom, and it is the subjection of all peoples, nations, and languages. Now, don't miss the implication, because that's the most important part. When you see there, when it says in the middle of that verse there, it says, and to him was given dominion and glory in the kingdom, why? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The implication of Christ coming in the clouds is then there is judgment due to all peoples, nations, and languages 
that do not serve Him. Because Christ is on the throne and He is King over all the nations and over all the rulers. And He is enthroned with an eternal rule and an eternal kingdom. And that's what you see used in so many places. We'll quickly go through these, like Jeremiah thirteen, excuse me, Jeremiah four, verse thirteen. Behold, he comes with like the clouds, chariots like the whirlwinds. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. A picture of God coming in judgment. When you read the picture of coming in the clouds, what God is doing is describing a national judgment against somebody, and you have to read, well, who is he talking about? Like Jeremiah 4, Ezekiel 30, for the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. This is not a description of it's going to be a cloudy day outside, might be a chance of rain. This is a description of a symbolic message of Christ coming in judgment. There will be doom because of this this judgment that is due. Zephaniah 1, verse 15, a day of wrath is that that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And we come to the New Testament, and it's there too. Matthew 24 and verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 26, verse 64, as Jesus speaks to the Sanhedrin council. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, seated on the throne, coming in the clouds. These are combined together. Christ is ruling. He's the King. He's in charge. And the implication is, if you're not serving Him, then judgment is due to you because He is the ruler over heaven and earth, sea and land. He is the one in charge. Burn this thought into your memory. Coming with the clouds is not a symbol of the end of the world. When you read the Scriptures, when you read Revelation, when you read Matthew, most everybody jumps right out the window and says, coming with the clouds, that must be talking about judgment because it says every eye is going to see Him. In fact, it says it right here. We'll talk about it in a minute. Every eye will see and so it must be the end of the world. Don't do that. Because we've already observed six other places where that phrase is used. And it doesn't mean that there. It's talking about a national judgment. There is an object of God's wrath. There has been a nation that has not subjected itself to the will of God. And because they have not done that, judgment now is due to them. They will be repaid for their evil ways. And that's what coming to the clouds is describing. God's enthroned and judgment is coming. And so Christ has authority and He then is going to judge all those who are worthy of that judgment. So that's just that first phrase. He's coming in the clouds. He brings that in and drops it right here. Judgment is due. Okay, Against who? What is He talking about? Well, that's the rest of it. Verse 7 of Revelation 1. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Now... If we didn't go touch back to the Old Testament, it would be easy to read that and say, that sounds like the end. Christ coming in the clouds. Every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him. All the tribes of the earth are wailing on account of Him. This is, this is the end, right? 
All of this has been used already in the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you a few of these along the way. Zechariah 12 is the key point of contact here. Zechariah 12, and notice in verse 10. And carefully consider what Zechariah is prophesying is going to happen. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on Me on whom they have pierced, there's our connection to what Revelation 1 is quoting, when they look on the one whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimen in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David itself, and the wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. I won't read verses 13 and 14. Notice he just keeps naming families. Everybody's wailing. Everybody's mourning. Verse 1, chapter 13. Horrendous chapter break. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. All of this is being dumped into this little phrase that Revelation 1 and verse 7 has. So what is Zechariah prophesying is going to take place? Walk through with it. Verse 10, what do he say? God's going to pour out mercy. God's going to pour out grace. What's going on? Why are the Jews mourning? Well, because they pierced the Messiah. Here is Zechariah prophesying. The Messiah is going to come and you are going to pierce Him. You are going to be the ones who are going to kill Him. However, God is going to pour out mercy. He's going to pour out grace and that is going to be poured out so that the people can repent. Chapter 13 and verse 1. A fountain is going to be opened up. What is it going to do? It's going to cleanse them of their sins. It's going to take away their uncleanness. What we see here is the people who pierced Him is a reference to the Jewish nation. That's how it's used here in Zechariah. Here is a prophecy by Zechariah to the Jewish nation saying, you're going to kill the Messiah. But God is going to offer forgiveness. There will be an opportunity for repentance. And that fountain will be opened up in the time to come. So here's Zechariah looking forward saying, you're going to kill Him. But God's going to still bring grace and God's going to still forgive sins. Now, Jesus quotes it also. Go to Matthew 24. And it would be fun if we had time to do all of Matthew 24. We don't. But just notice three, these three verses. And these three verses are typically understood to be the end of the world. Then I want you to see that they're not. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Now here's our quote. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. If we go back to Matthew 24 in the first two verses, you have Jesus beginning this description as 
the disciples say, look at what tall buildings, look what glorious buildings there are here in Jerusalem. And Jesus turns around and says, not one stone is going to be left upon another. He turns around and then describes to them the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the Jewish nation that was going to come about at the beginning of Matthew 24. And that's what's being followed through here. What we saw in Zechariah, Jesus does the same formula right here. In verse 29, what did, did we observe that there's going to be judgment? Burn, listen to your memory bank number two. When you read that the sun will no longer shine, when you read that the moon will no longer give its light, when you read that stars are going to fall from the sky or no longer shine, that's not the end of the world. What it is describing is the end of that nation. They will no longer see the sun. They will no longer see the moon. They will no longer see the stars. And I've used the phrase that my father has used, it's lights out for the nation. You're done. Goodbye. You're judged. And that's what it means. There's no longer the sun shining. What does that mean? You're in the grave. That's what it means. It doesn't mean it's the end of the sun. It means it's the end of you. That's what's being pictured here. So verse 29, Jesus begins, judgment. Sun, suns and moon, sun's not going to be dark and the moon will not give us light. The stars are going to fall. What's verse 30 say? The Jewish nation has pierced the Messiah and He's coming in the clouds of power and glory. That's the very quotation from Zechariah. Jesus reaches back to Zechariah and dumps it in right here. Okay, So verse 29, judgment's coming. Verse 30, it's the Jewish nation that's pierced the Messiah. Verse 31, it's the repentant who are spared. All right. Now we did all that. Plug all of that now to Revelation 1 and verse 7. Back to Revelation 1 and verse 7. Read with me again and notice, do you observe a phrase in Revelation 1 and verse 7 that wasn't in Zechariah? Behold, He's coming in the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even so, Amen. The one phrase added that is very fascinating to what John is now going to work in his revelation, it is the phrase, every eye will see him. You go back to Zechariah 12, that's not there. And what is John then attempting to do for us as he is reaching for the meaning of Zechariah, the same meaning that Jesus used in Matthew 24, what is John trying to accomplish? Well, let's walk through it piece by piece. We're going to go nice and slow. Look at verse 7. He's coming with the clouds. What did we say the takeaway was when we read coming with the clouds? Christ is on the throne. He has authority. Judgment's coming. Right. Christ is on the throne. Those who aren't submitting to Him, they're going to be judged. So that's our first phrase in verse 7. Behold, He is coming in the clouds. Christ is on the throne. He is ruling. Judgment is coming. The next phrase, and every eye will see Him. What's the point? Who's involved in every? Everybody. What's He talking about? There's nobody excluded in this judgment. So He's drawing in more than what was found in Zechariah. What was Zechariah saying? The Jews are going to kill the Messiah. And they're going to be judged, but there will be an opportunity for repentance. John adds something. Not only are the Jews being judged, 
Everybody is going to be judged. Gentiles are being included in this message about Revelation. What is going to be described about these scary, frightful judgments as they are depicted with this imagery is that it's going to be to everybody, the Romans, the Gentiles, they are included because they have rebelled against the authority of Christ. And much of the book of Revelation will describe that. It's going to describe how they stood against the cross. We're going to read about this beast that rises up. And what is it doing? It's claiming deity to itself. And people are bowing down and worshiping the beast. We're going to read about all that in chapters 13, 14, 15. It's going to be a while, but it's out there. And we're going to get there. And so here John is already setting it up. Nobody's excluded. The Romans too. They're going to be judged. Let's go back to our text now. Verse 7. Even those who pierced Him. Who was that describing? What was that our message of Zechariah? Not only are the Romans going to be judged, the Jewish nation's not exempt. The Jewish nation's not exempt. That's what Zechariah used, and that's what Jesus used. They both used the quote, even those who pierced Him. And what Zechariah was saying, the Jewish nation's going to kill the Messiah. And Jesus says, judgment against Jerusalem is coming because you are going to crucify me. And here's John saying, yep, judgment's coming because you've pierced him. So you have these two pictures being joined together. Every eye will see him. This judgment's against all nations. It's going to be Rome and the Gentiles included. But the Jewish nation is not excluded. Final phrase. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Did you catch it in Zechariah 12? What did that mean when they were mourning and wailing over the one whom they've pierced? What was Zechariah saying? Is that there's the judgments are intended to bring repentance. A spirit of mercy and grace is being poured out. A fountain is being opened up for forgiveness of sins. Why was judgment coming? What is Zechariah saying? He's saying repent. Because the judgment is coming. You're going to pierce Him, but you need to come back. What's Jesus doing in Matthew 24? The destruction of Jerusalem's coming. Your judgment's coming. Repent. Be the elect. The ones who can avoid the judgment. The purpose is to show that repentance is available. Now, here's your preview. Let's, let's jump ahead in Revelation just to see that this is what's going on. Revelation 9, verse 20. After describing all of these graphic judgments and scorpions and locusts. We're going to read about all of that. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone which they which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. Here is God laying it out. I brought judgments. The people were supposed to repent. They didn't repent. And we'll get to chapters 10 and 11. It'll say, and so full judgment comes upon them. And that happens again in verse 16. In chapter 16, verse 9. And they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out His bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. The people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. You see what John is doing here by saying, and 
And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him as He is saying, there's going to be an opportunity for repentance. God is coming. Christ is on the throne. Judgment is coming. It is coming against the Romans. It is coming against the Jews. The judgment is coming. If you will repent, you can avoid this. Grace and mercy are still being poured out, but Revelation is going to come along later and say, but the people did not repent. The people did not turn. They did not come back to God. And just as we saw, as I mentioned, at the after chapter 9, those statements that they did not repent, chapters 10 and 11 describes a final judgment. And after chapter 16, chapter 17 and 18 describes another final judgment against that object of God's wrath as well. Okay? Let's add verse 8 then. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega, that's the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That's the same thing as saying Jesus is the A to Z. He's the first and the last and everything in between. He's everything. All authority is given to Him. Despite all that is going on, Christ still remains enthroned. He still has authority. He still has rule over all the earthly powers, over all the kings of the earth. He has set up His eternal kingdom. He does have eternal rule. And that's really what these five verses, from verse 4 to verse 8, are just setting up for us. Is that Jesus is described as the Almighty God, the King and Lord of armies, the unchangeable God who will accomplish His will, who will fulfill His word and execute His judgments. What we are supposed to take away right there is to understand, yeah, there's a whole lot of things going on. There's a whole lot of evil that was going on in that first century, but Christ was still the King. Christ was still ruling on the throne And what he's describing is he's coming in the clouds. Judgment was due to those nations. And Revelation is going to spend its time depicting here's what is due. Here's what is going to come. And we're going to read about partial judgments in an effort to bring repentance. And then we will read about a full judgment because they did not repent. And so here just sets the tone and the frame of the book of Christ is warring against the nations. They think they're in charge. They're refusing to serve the Christ. But Christ is the one who will be victorious. It's one of the things that I think is fascinating as we wrap up tonight is a reminder, as often we do the exact same thing. We look around. There's wars and chaos and the Middle East is a mess and everything's a disaster. How can anything ever be figured out? And and we get very discouraged and in a tizzy about world events. Christ is sitting on the throne. Christ is ruling. He's in charge. He is executing authority over all the kings of the earth. They may do all the things that they want to do, but I always appreciate the concept that seemed like in Psalm 2. God sits up there and laughs in derision as they think that they can go up against the Almighty God. They cannot. Christ has all authority. Christ has all dominion. Christ has all rule. And He will bring His judgments. And Revelation depicts that very thing happening. 
This Wednesday night, what we will do is we will go through and we will answer the questions you have. We will kick off the class with, all right, what's your question? So you have three days to sit down and go, wow, I didn't get any of that. Uh, Let's write those things on a piece of paper and you bring them to class Wednesday night and they'll give you the opportunity to ask questions about this text and we can go through it a few more times if we need to to get a handle on these prophecies. This is what revelation looks like. This is why revelation becomes difficult is sometimes we're unwilling to do the the hard work of now what did it mean back there? Go back to the Old Testament, grasp the image, see what's being described, pull it forward and drop it into revelation and go, okay, what's going on? Oh, he's not talking about final judgment. He's actually speaking of a national judgment with a message of mercy. Repent before it's too late. And that's certainly our call to you. Won't you repent before it's too late? The Lord has promised He will come in final judgment as well. And it is our opportunity today, while it is still today, to turn away from our sins, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, confess Him as the Lord, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. These are the conditions to receive the grace of God. We beg you to do it this very evening, to understand that Christ is in charge And everyone must submit to His will. Won't you do it tonight? Won't you come forward while we stand and while we sing?